Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the PD Podcast hosted by myself, Pranay Budev. I have been truly humbled and overwhelmed by the tremendous response to our very first episode where I sat down with Professor Deborah Eastwood. We are now available on all podcast platforms and it has been amazing to connect with so many of you on social media. I hope you enjoy our next episode where I sit with Mr. Dan Perry, specifically talking about research and how he is truly a rising star in our field. Please enjoy the episode, like, subscribe, comment, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, thank you for joining me, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me. And I really want to, you, you know, you're still within your first decade as a consultant. And first you've had decade? S- first five years. Oh, well, there we are. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I really wanted to know how you've made such an impact in the field so far. But I really want to go back to the very beginning. So uh, what drove you towards medicine and uh, how was your sort of medical school training and life? Any interesting stories? Oh, wait, uh, put me on the spot. So, um, so I came to med school from, uh, uh, so I went to the med school in Liverpool, uh, which is kind of where I, Whenever I gravitate away from Liverpool, it's always where I kind of uh, fall back to. Uh, originally, I came from Birmingham, um, and I went to a very normal, comprehensive school where no one had been to medical school for 16 years. Um, uh, so, so I was always. Uh, so I remember uh, uh, being uh, a careers day uh, at um, at school, and the careers tutor stood at the front and said, "If anyone wants to be a doctor or a dentist or a pilot, forget about that now. You're just normal Birmingham boys." So, uh, so, so, so that was kind of off-putting, but I've always tried to fight against adversity. So, so when when uh, uh, I was doing all right in exams and stuff, I I, I kind of uh, uh, took the plunge and, and decided to apply to medical school. Just the just the normal medical schools like Liverpool and you know not not on the clever stuff like Oxford because I was just a Birmingham boy. So, uh, so yeah, so I applied to Liverpool and, and got into Liverpool Med School, and uh, yeah, it's kind of gone from there. And, and I've always just pushed myself forward to to kind of do as good as I can. And when did you decide to go into orthopaedics specifically? Was that during medical school? Was that in your early days of uh, house officer days? So I didn't really like orthopaedic surgery at med school. Um, I used to think orthopaedic surgeons were, were kind of rugby players and stuff. Um, uh, and I, I played a bit of rugby, but, but that's not what I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to be a surgeon, and I thought I wanted to be a paediatric general surgeon. So it was right up until the day of applying for registrar jobs that I had a paediatric surgery reg job application filled in and ready. And I had a... Uh, and, and I realised my CV because I just how it had fallen. I'd done a few more orthopaedic jobs as an SHO, so I also re- wrote an orthopaedic um, application. And then I was sat with my wife, and we were debating which one I should send. Uh, and in the end, I sent the orthopaedic one, always knowing that that I try and choose to do children's orthopaedic surgery. Fantastic. And were there any particular mentors that led you to that, or was that during your sort of registrar training? Uh, so, so, so no. So right from um, so right from the outset, because I wanted to do peds, um, peds orthopedics. I, I well, because I wanted to do pediatric surgery, pediatric orthopedics was a natural way to fall. So right at the beginning of my registrar training, it's my first job. Um, I was given a post at Alder Hay, um, uh, so given a six month uh, uh, position, which is really unusual for a registrar to to have peds ortho in training that early, um, and that's where I met. Kind of my really good friends now, so Colin Bruce and Alf Bass, the, the kind of the senior guys at, at Alder Hay, and they really inspired me to to want to do children's orthopedics, and uh, and 
and, and it was at that stage that, that kind of I started to get into research because Colin had noticed that Perth Age disease, um, uh, which we saw lots of in Liverpool, he'd known that Perth Age disease was, uh, he found it to be less frequent in his practice. Um, and uh, a, a, a very eminent surgeon from Liverpool called John Monk had unfortunately just died um, and he'd had a legacy fund. Um, and so, so his legacy fund uh, really opened doors for me. So, so that was uh, what, what kicked off my being able to do a PhD. Yeah, so you did this PhD in epidemiology. Why specifically epidemiology? Tell me, uh, obviously, how you managed to fill that in whilst you were currently in, within registrar training and your sort of project and how that has helped you t even to this day. Well, yeah, so I came out of training to do, um, to do uh, a PhD. Um, and so, so because Colin had noticed this change in the incidence of Perth Ace disease, um, I, uh, I decided to, to, to look at it a bit more formally and, and to work out how I could do this. So I, I went to some of the local academics um, and said I'd really like to do a PhD. Um, and um, almost everyone said, you're an orthopaedic surgeon, don't be stupid. Orthopaedic surgeons don't do PhDs. Um, and so it was a little bit disappointing and a little bit, um, uh, uh, you, you, I was taken aback a little bit that no one wanted to support me doing PhDs. So I, I kind of, uh, I emailed some people who, who'd been interested in Perth Ace disease before. So, uh, so there was a guy called Andy Hall um, who was uh, then Professor Andy Hall, who's now Professor Sir Andy Hall, who um, did his PhD in Liverpool uh, in, the 19, uh, in the 1980s. Um, and he'd done a PhD about how the incidence of Perth disease was changing then in Liverpool. Um, and he'd subsequently gone on to become a professor at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine doing infectious disease research. Um, and so I, I contacted him out of the blue and said, uh, I'm just a little orthopaedic surgeon in Liverpool, please will you, uh, please will you uh, uh, help supervise me to do a PhD? And Andy was super nice and he's a really close friend of mine now and he's, he's been a great mentor. Um, and so I, I so with Andy and with uh, a guy called Dan Pope, who's a professor of epidemiology in Liverpool, and Mary Jane Platt, who's now a professor of epidemiology in Norwich, um, I, I embarked on a PhD, and it, there was no clinical input. So it was uh, except Colin, who was a, a Colin Bruce, who was a, a good mentor and supervisor, but but it was a really methods-heavy PhD. Um, but because of that, I, I learned kind of how to manage big data, so big data sets uh, really well, which has set me up for my future. It's uh, uh, you know it really it really yeah, it taught me loads and loads about research methods. I got certificates from Royal Statistical Society to kind of boost my boost my methods, and and that's what set me up nicely. So I, so it all turned out for the best. And the, how long did it take you to do the PhD? I did my PhD in two and a half years. Two and a half years, and then you returned back to clinical practice. Yeah, then I went back to clinical practice. I I came back on the rotation as as a registrar for about a year and a half, um, and then Damien Griffin and Matt Costa in Warwick uh, asked me whether I'd want to go and join them to be a lecturer. Uh, initially, I, I, I rejected their, their, their very kind offer, uh, but latterly I, I could, was getting a little bit more frustrated in training because I wanted to do research. So then I took uh, their offer up and moved down to Warwick uh, as a lecturer, uh, where I spent a year uh, before going up my fellowship. Yeah, fellowship. And uh, where did you go on fellowship? Uh, so fellowship, I went to the uh, very famous uh, Sick Kids in Toronto uh, and had a, a lovely year in, uh, in, in beautiful Toronto. Yeah, how was that? I mean, so many... Uh, so many paediatric orthopaedic um, surgeons in the UK have been out to Toronto. Yeah, no, what, what's the natural gravitation to Toronto and, and what was your experiences there? So Toronto is a great place. Um, it's, um, uh, so the gravitation was, I mean, it, it's, its reputation goes before it, doesn't it? It's, it's got a great reputation for training and indeed, you know, it, it was great for, for, for training both surgically and also academically. 
Uh, they're a great group of minds and, and they're good for discussing things with um, and yeah, discussing what, what we may do and how we may do it in the future. And, and I've made some really great contacts that, that, that we, you know, we, we keep on going now. And um, what rotations did you do out there? Sort of how many cases were you doing? Did it really set you up for your clinical practice now? Yeah, so, um, so Toronto very much did that. So, so the trauma side of things was great. Uh, I did almost 100 supracondylar fractures in the year I was there. So, so it, it was high volume. Um, there was one in four of us doing, we were one in four on call. Um, and we used to live across the road from the hospital, which was, uh, which was pretty necessary when on the, the chillier days when it was minus 20. Uh, so it was a, a pretty, pretty chilly place. The, um, the, uh, I, we, we pretty much you rotate through everything when you're there. I even have to do a bit of spine, which, uh, which I did somewhat kicking and screaming, although Rainer Honzella, who's the spine surgeon there, he's the nicest man in the whole world, um, which, made it, which made it completely lovely. Um, uh, but then, you know, working with uh, uh, John Wedge and uh, Simon Kelly and Uni Narayan and, you know, all, all of the guys, they're, they're so, you know, they're so good and able to influence, you know, your, your, your clinical practice. And I'm sure you did some research while you were out there. So what, what project did you actually do when you're out there? And I'm sure you've done many since. Yeah, so, um, so while I was out there with um, Simon Kelly, we were looking at um, AVN rates for, for DDH. Um, and uh, so that was a, a good project that's uh, uh, set me up into into the future. Uh, but I think more than that, while I was there, I was planning my next move on how I was going to come back to the UK and how I was going to uh, uh, start to set up research practice here. So while I was there, I, I actually had to write an application, a grant application, which, uh, which kicked off my career back in England. And so that took a fair amount of my time as well, kind of squirreled away doing that. And coming back from SickKids, you were appointed at Older Hay Children's Hospital. Was that in an academic job plan? What, what was your job plan? Was there time given for research? How do you negotiate that? So, so coming back to the UK, so, so uh, initially I was appointed at Coventry and Warwick, um, uh, or University of Warwick, as an as a, uh, as a, uh, associate professor. Um, uh, uh, and I was very grateful to Steve and Giles and all of those guys, um, but, but we, we were tending to gravitate, or wanting to gravitate towards Liverpool, uh, and therefore um, I actually took up a, a job, uh, and then I got a job at Alder Hay, um, and um, at Alder Hay, um, they had agreed to give me a few, uh, the, 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 the clinical team had agreed to um, basically do extra sessions um, in order to pay for me to do research on the basis that they, they, they were so prepared to invest in, in supporting me to do research that they were going to do over and above their clinical practice so I could have a 50% research job, which I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, as it turns out, the grant that I was applying for from Toronto um, meant that I didn't need to take them up on that offer because um, I got, uh, I got um, uh, a big grant from the National Institute of Health Research uh, and so therefore I was able to come straight in as a consultant entirely employed by the National Institute of Health Research, which was an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And what does your clinical practice mainly consist of now? Um, so, um, so, now I'm, uh, so now I do um, uh, largely research. Um, my clinical practice is on Thursdays and Fridays, um, and uh, I do, um, uh, I'm quite specialist, so I do mainly um, pediatric hip surgery, um, so usually DDH, Perthase disease. We see loads and loads of Perthase disease in Liverpool, so, so generally we have one new case every week. Um, and, um, and then I do bone cysts, um, mainly because of Jim Wright's SBOC trial from Toronto, so, so the bone cysts kind of come my way, um, and, and then I do trauma. 
You were awarded the Biscos Travelling Fellowship, I'm not sure what year, but it was pretty early into your consultancy, wasn't it? Yeah, so that was, um, yeah, uh, after a couple of years. And uh, where did you go? Uh, so on the Biscos Travelling Fellowship, um, I, uh, I went to see Harry Kim, so I've got a big interest in Perthes disease. So Harry Kim at Texas Scottish Rite uh, leads the uh, International Perthes Disease Study Group, uh, and I'm very interested in how I can uh, uh, work with that group in order to deliver the ultimate trial, which is a randomised controlled trial of uh, containment versus uh, versus non-operative care in Perthes disease. So, so I went to see him and went to talk about my research ideas and went to to network with that international Perthes disease study group, which was which was really great, and uh, and that's led to to kind of other contacts around the world, which has been really useful. Um, I went out to see Mo Bandari at McMaster, um, and so so children's orthopaedic surgeons won't really know who Mo is, but Mo. Uh, essentially, is, uh, has, has changed research practice throughout the world. He's he's like, the, 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 there's there's two big leaders in orthopaedic research in the world, and one's Matt Costa, who I work with very closely now in Oxford, um, and the other one is um, Mo Bandari, and they're both you know they're amazing research leaders, and they've they've really changed their field. So I wanted to know what what kind of what drove him and what, what how he got to where he was, because basically I don't want to I don't want to do anything other than copy him. And um, you came back, so you obviously used that uh, travel fellowship to really uh, educate yourself more about setting up big trials, which really naturally takes us on to BOSS, uh, which has made a huge impact in collaborative research in the UK. How did you come up with that idea? What was your inspiration for it? And tell me about the trials and tribulations of setting up that big national trial. Yeah, so, so, Boss, so Boss was the thing I was applying for when I was in Toronto and, and, and so, I, uh, so I applied for that in Toronto and, and um, uh, that was the, the, the role I took up at uh, Alderhey Hospital. So, so, so Boss, for people that don't know, is the British, surgery, uh, British Orthopaedic Surgery Surveillance Study. So Boss started as a Sufi study um, and in Warwick we were planning on running a, a big study um, which was going to answer all of our difficult questions in Sufi. So, so it was actually the British Orthopaedic Sufi Surgery Study as it started. Um, but we realised quickly that, that to do a big study in Sufi was actually, we, we didn't know a lot of the, the basic information, like we didn't know what the incidence of Sufi was, we didn't know uh, the distribution of cases, we had got no idea how many were severe and how many were minor. Um, so, so we didn't know the fundamental basics in order to, 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 to inform uh, a randomised controlled trial. So the National Institute of Health Research were never going to give us one and a half million quid to do a Sufi trial um, or, or, or more um, because we just didn't know it enough and we were too much high risk. So I changed the Sufi, uh, Sufi um, uh, surgery trial uh, to the British Orthopaedic, Sufi, uh, British Orthopaedic Surgery Surveillance Study, um, uh, keeping the same logo and everything, it was all cunning, um, and, um, uh, and therefore we, we formed a uh, uh, the plan was to have a, a national um, cohort of Perthes disease, uh, of Sufi, and I threw in Perthes disease because Alder Hay gave me a, another uh, bit of money to, in order to s um, support that. So instead of having a one and a half million pound trial, um, NHR invested in me as a, as a, as a research leader um, and gave me money to run BOSS. Um, uh, and so to run BOSS it cost about 300,000 pounds. Um, and then my salary, so the total they gave me was about uh, about a million pounds over five years to to set up BOSS, to set up collaborative research. And at the start of BOSS, I promised NIHR four things. Um, I promised them that we were gonna, I was going to tell them about the feasibility data for a Sufi trial. Um, I told them I was going to uh, give them a collaborative group interested in research. I was told them I was going to have a, uh, a really 
uh, cool way of collecting data, so a really cool cap data capture mechanism. Uh, and I told them that uh, we were going to involve patients heavily. Um, and that's, I think that's what we've delivered. We're coming up to five years now, and, and we've, got, we've got an amazing collaborative group. So BOSS started at kind of 30 interested centres, and has grown out to be 143 hospitals and took part in BOSS. Um, I was very keen that orthopaedic surgeons, children's orthopaedic surgeons, never really done research before, so I wanted to make it as easy as possible for them. So if there was any pieces of paper that I could fill in, I would fill in um, to make sure people didn't have to do it. Uh, at the same time, I was quite fortunate because um, national R&D permission was taken away from hospitals and given to a, an organisation called the Health Research Authority. So it meant that, um, that, that instead of getting approval in every individual R&D, we could get single approval that in theory covered the whole of the UK. Um, and so the HRA um, uh, 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 very, very kindly had BOSS as its first study. Uh, um, and, and so BOSS was opened at 143 hospitals uh, overnight. Um, and, and because we were collecting data from surgeons and because it didn't, need, uh, uh, didn't necessarily need uh, research nurses to be involved, um, uh, we got permission for it to be open without any, any additional uh, uh, consent needed from the hospitals, which was a huge bonus. Um, and over time, people have got their research nurses involved, and, you know, but BOSS has, has really sparked on units to, to get more savvy with how research works and to get research teams involved in their departments. So, so we've created this big collaborative network that's, that's, that's now working really well. And uh, how many patients were enrolled in BOSS? I know you've closed uh, recruiting quite a while back now, and when are we expecting to hear the first level of results? Sure, so, so BOSS had, um, it was about 900 patients that were enrolled in BOSS and they had uh, about 500 cases of Sufi and about 400 cases of Perthes disease. And we were quite clever because we linked it to the HES data. So, so uh, surgeons had to enter the cases as they saw them. Um, but um, the, the national hospital episode statistics for uh, England, Wales and Scotland were all fed into our system. So if, if we saw the codes um, uh, uh, in the national uh, administrative data that, that meant there was a Sufi admitted and the surgeon hadn't told us, uh, the system that we built automatically emailed the surgeon and said, Oi, mate, I know there's a Sufi, you're just hiding it from me, please tell me about it. And it worked really, really well. So we had a really steady recruitment, so we, we're confident we've captured more than 95% of Sufi in the UK over that 18-month that, that period that was BOSS. Um, Perthes, I can't be quite as sure because it doesn't always get admitted for surgery, um, but, um, but we've got a, a good amount of, uh, of uh, Perthes to inform future clinical trials, which is ultimately where I'm headed. And uh, you obviously have a big team that you work with yeah. for BOSS, so tell me about them and what role they play, because I'm sure it's a big one. So BOSS, Boss has got a big team, um, so, so I was really naive at the beginning of doing this, you know, I didn't understand the way that, that real research worked, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I'd done a PhD, but that was very much kind of doing a big data PhD where you sit with a computer and number crunch. So to run big clinical studies uh, does involve big teams and, and that's why it's so expensive. That's why clinical trial does cost you know, one and a half million pounds at least usually. Um, so, so running BOSS um, uh, day to day, uh, I, my research uh, coordinator is Priya. Uh, and so, so her life is, is, I'm sorry Priya, but your life is BOSS. Um, <laughs> uh, so she's, um, but she's great and she's awesome. Um, and the other person who's really key to it, so there's two other people who's really, really key. Um, uh, one is uh, Duncan, and Duncan's the IT guy who just made it work, and, and he just he just designs beautiful systems and, and just makes it makes it work. Made heads interact with it. He's just really cool. Uh, and then Barbara, so Barbara's a statistician, and so 
So whenever I started doing this, I kind of expected perhaps you'll need a statistician at the end of the study. Um, but, in, but, but to do a proper study, you need a statistician right from the start um, to, to start designing even the, the case report forms, what it's going to look like, how data collection is going to look. So Barbara's been in there from the outset, and she, we worked together to, to do every part of BOSS. Um, so, um, so, so that's that's the kind of vague team, and then there's there's all sorts of people in the you know a, a, alongside that that they're very much helping support the senior trials management team like CAF, and th there's lots of people that, who do the coding and stuff. So yeah, it's huge. And you didn't just make everyone's life easier to help recruit to this, but you also really engage with trainees. I was a trainee when Boss was first starting to recruit. I remember getting emails from you all the time, and uh, and you really helped uh, bring trainees together. Uh, which probably helped capture some cases that may have gone unnoticed, although heads probably would have picked those up. Um, and also, you really have involved patients and families in, in creating some of the other trials we're going to be talking about. So tell me why you thought that was important and uh, how, how it's helped. Um, okay, so, so, so firstly, trainees, are, uh, so, so there's a real great incentive for everyone to involve trainees now. So, so uh, the, there was a group in Birmingham in the UK, who, uh, a group of trainees who basically led clinical trials and, and uh, have had really big clinical trials published and, and they were general surgeons. So I really wanted to try and capture that and bring our trainees into the, into the fold. The, the BOA have been really keen on encouraging trainees to do research. So, so we now know that the involvement in research for trainees is part of their, a core part of their training. And in, in fact, they need to show evidence of it in order to, 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 to get, uh, to become a consultant. Uh, and therefore, it, it's very much a win for me to, to get trainees involved in what I do, to try and inspire them to do research on their own and try and inspire the, the next generation of researchers. Um, but it's also a win for them as well, because, because they, they need to do it. Uh, and so, so involving trainees is, is a great thing, it's, it's really fun. Involving patients, so, so I'll be honest, when I first started involving patients, when I first became a, a researcher, I kind of thought involving patients was a little bit kind of token and something you had to do, but I'm a complete convert to patient engagement. So, so NHR was, was, NHR was set up about 12 or 13 years ago now, perhaps a bit more, um, to, uh, and it was set up by uh, uh, Dame Sally Davis, um, and the reason it was is, was because we had things like the MRC beforehand, so the Medical Research Council, who funded a lot of basic science research and funded a lot of research that was important to, um, important to, um, uh, to, to what doctors thought was important. Um, but, but there was a big missing gap because we didn't know what was important to patients. Um, and so NHR was very much set, set up to be focused around the patient and, and drive what patients want to do and drive research that's important for patients. Um, and uh, and I'm, patients are, are completely the core of what I do now. So, um, so, so we've you know we've had great great uh, patients who've uh, who've changed uh, what we do in terms of our research, changed the research questions fundamentally. They've uh, uh, I've got a group of patients that help us um, uh, every time we, we 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 make videos to try and sell uh, consent. Um, so, so a lot of my trials now are about surgery or no surgery. Uh, and to do that, you, you really need to have patients on board in order to, to say, look, you know, how are we going to sell this intervention versus this intervention where this intervention is, is nothing at all, that's really. And that's really difficult. So you need to get patients and they, they sit with you and, and debate how you're going to uh, uh, sell both arms. And so, uh, so I'm wishing a little bit, but patients are so important. Um, you know, we've had patient groups at Chester Zoo and it's, it's all cool. It's really fun. Yeah. And um, you've been... Uh involved with Biscos and setting the research priorities with the Lind Alliance. Uh, tell me a bit more about that and then why don't we take that naturally into talking about some of the current studies that, 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 are, that you're running. Sure, so, um, so 
there's, there's several ways you can so there's several ways that you can get your research funded um, uh, and so so as a researcher if I want to get research funded I can just go to the National Institute of Health Research and say um, please may I have one and a half million pounds because I've got a really great idea but if I say that they're, 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 it, I, I might have a great idea but they don't really know it's a great idea so other ways you can try and get research funded or, or influence what the funders think about your research is to involve other surgeons uh, and better still ask the patients because like I say NHR is a patient uh, you know it's for the patients so, so we set up research priorities within BISCOS, um, firstly by uh, doing a consensus exercise amongst surgeons, and we published that in the BJJ uh, back in 2018, uh, and that was where BISCOS members rated uh, their research priorities. Um, and that's a quick and, uh, uh, a quick and relatively straightforward way to get consensus amongst your peers, um, but, but the gold standard way is to do a James Lind Alliance exercise. And James Lind was, um, was, is famed as the, the first clinical trialist um, uh, uh, for, for discovering how to treat scurvy. So, so that's why it's called James Lind. But, but James Lind Alliance is essentially part of NHR, so it works alongside NHR. Um, and um, uh, it's where the professions, so, so where doctors, physiotherapists, nurses, um, uh, patients, parents, children, where they all come together um, and decide on what's the most important research priorities. And so the areas have to be fairly defined because you need to make sure the right people are in the room. Uh, so at Biscos, we uh, did a James Limb Priority Setting Partnership about lower limb uh, fractures in children. Oh, sorry, lower limb uh, elective disease of the lower limbs in children. Um, and um, uh, and that was very much led by um, Tim Theologius, and, and I was part of the, the, the steering group for that. Um, but but that's a, a long process. It's it's a tough process. Um, uh, about identifying priorities involving, you know, we had a thousand, uh, a thousand research suggestions from patients, parents, the public, um, uh, which we had to look at each one, we had to collate it, we had to assimilate them where they could be joined together, look at the evidence for each one, and then and then run several rounds of consensus building to try and work out which of these um, which of these questions are most important. So, um, so so it's a big long process um, uh, to get that done, but we recently uh, we've recently. Finish that. We're just about to publish that in the, the, the BMJ Open, uh, which is um, which is really good, um, and hopefully that's going to inform NIHR, and we can then give that list to NIHR, and we can say, look, you know, we really do have great great research ideas now because we all agree that this is the most important research question. Please maybe have one and a half million pounds, and they're much more likely to give you one and a half million pounds to 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 answer that for for patients and the public. And um, obviously you talked about the lower limb sort of elective uh, problems, but actually a lot of the trials that are going on right now are about upper limb uh, trauma. Yeah. So tell me about force, uh, science, craft, what they stand for, with what stages are they all at? Yes, so we're, we're very fortunate. We've got, we've got quite a few trials going on at the moment. So, um, so the first trial that I got set up was force. Um, so force um, stands for forearm recovery in children evaluation. Um, and uh, force came out of the NICE guidelines. So, so NICE, uh, every time NICE produced uh, uh, guidelines, so the, the non-complex fracture uh, guidelines were produced in uh, uh, 2016, I think. Um, and they, each NICE guideline has five research recommendations at the end. Um, and one of the research recommendations was um, uh, what's the management of, uh, should, we, should we do anything in the treatment of torus fracture? Should we just discharge them without any treatment at all? Um, uh, and so, like NIHR take notice of uh, what patients and the public think, they also take notice of what these right, nice research recommendations are. So, so NIHR lifted that question um, and, 
uh, and uh, advertise that question to, to, uh, to invite a trial. Um, and initially I discussed this with parents groups and said, look, you know, the, the National Institute of Health Research are nice, I think we should do a trial of uh, nothing versus casts. And patients and the public said, we're not prepared to accept that, you know, we're not doing nothing. So, so by listening to patients and listening to the public, we agreed with them and said, okay, you know, we're not going to do nothing, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you a bandage. Uh, and not, I don't mean put it on, like, here's your bandage. Um, uh, you know, you can have it on if you want, but, but if not, you know, it's here and you can have it if it gets sore later on. So, so, so I, like, I think that's a really key piece of um, patient engagement because by listening to them, we've taken a trial which, which we may have just run with if we haven't involved patients and we would have found it really difficult to recruit to. And now we've got a trial that's recruiting really, really well. So, we're, uh, so, so FORCE um, is, an, is, is the first completely electronic study within the National Institute of Health Research. Um, uh, it's, um, uh, so far we've recruited, uh, I'm a bit obsessed, I haven't checked it this morning yet, but it's about 470, uh, uh, 670 patients. Uh, so on average, in the summer months, we're recruiting up to eight, nine patients a day. Uh, now we've, we've slowed down a bit and it's just one or two patients a day as it's got a wee bit chilly. So, um, so, but, but it's going really, really well and we should have an answer to that in, uh, uh, by about June next year. Uh, so with the other studies, so science was the, the BISCOS number one research priority amongst the, the consensus group amongst surgeons. So that was advertised by NIHR as a research priority because they read our consensus paper. Um, and so that is the big question of whether we fix medial epicondyl fractures or not. Um, and so science very conveniently stands for surgery or casts for injuries of the epicondyle in children's elbows, which I thought was genius. So we're putting science in orthopedics. Um, so, um, so it's about whether we fix the epicondyl or don't fix it. And again, it's, it's completely online. Um, we were, uh, uh, the, the website's um, uh, sciencestudy.org. Um, we, we work with patients to make it beautiful. Um, because it's a really, really hard study to sell. You know, whether you're going to do an operation or not do an operation, that's a tough trial. And I was told by lots of people that that was impossible. We'd never answer that question. Uh, we need a big number. We need 334 patients to answer it. Um, so I was told it was impossible. Um, but by by tapping into the groups we had in Boss, so these 142 hospitals, and and now more who more hospitals that, that don't necessarily treat Sufi and Perthes disease, but but do treat other minor trauma they're all getting involved as well. So we've got this massive network of, of hospitals that want to be involved. So far we've got 42 hospitals open, uh, 44 hospitals open, um, and we've um, recruited, as of yesterday, 41 patients. So we're getting on average four patients a week at the moment, which is amazing. You know, we're recruiting to a surgery versus no surgery trial. We've got a more than 50% conversion from screening to recruitment. That's, a, that's phenomenal. We're doing really well. And there's a craft, has that begun? So Craft, Craft is coming uh, in um, Craft is coming in April, hopefully. So Craft is again, it's funded. It's another NHL study. It's about one and a half million pounds, um, and this is very much based uh, around Crawford's paper, the, the Hawaii paper, as it's well known, uh, that was published in the JBJS in 2012, um, which uh, looks at offended distal radius fractures and whether whether we should or shouldn't do anything for offended distal radius fractures uh, in, in younger kids, because frankly, they just remodel. Um, uh, and so, so I've got a really strong, uh, uh, what I haven't mentioned so far is I've got a really, really strong network of collaborators, not only as orthopaedic surgeons, but as, as pediatric A&E guys now as well. So we've got a big group called Peruki, uh, 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 of which I'm part, and I, uh, I, I, I run some research within this group, so FORCE, they're really good at recruiting to FORCE. So, so between uh, the orthopaedic surgeons and the A&E guys, we've now got a really cool way of, of kind of, of linking the two. So, so Kraft, 
Croft, which stands for Children's Radius Acute Fracture Fixation Trial uh, after draft, draft two. Uh, so, um, so we're going to um, recruit um, uh, uh, children um, up to 10 years old um, who've got uh, a displaced distal radius fracture and it's going to be stratified by whether it's uh, uh, completely offended or not um, uh, into, um, uh, into uh, this trial. Um, and so, um, so the interventions are uh, acute reduction, uh, 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 under, um, under acute reduction uh, when the child's unconscious uh, versus uh, caster mobilization with a conscious patient. I mean, you've done so much in five years. Where do you see all of this going? What are your big dreams and aspirations for, for all of this in the community? Um, so where do I see it going? Um, I, I kind of, um, I, I just quite like answering questions. I like the buzz of research. I like setting it up. I like, I like making it work. It's kind of, it gives me a little buzz. It's really exciting and, 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 and I enjoy that. Um, it, it is quite a lot of work, and I apologise to my wife a little bit um, because you know I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I am quite often just just hiding my study a little bit. Um, but but I've got a great wife and a great family who is hugely supportive, and I try and spend as much time as I can. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but where's it going? I, I don't know where it's going. The the, the question I want to answer, um, and, and and I've told everyone I'll retire when I answer it, is Perthes disease. You know, surgery or no surgery for Perthes disease. I, I do loads of surgery in my practice. As I say, it's my most common operation to do a varus osteotomy or a shelf osteotomy. Um, and I've got no idea if I should be doing it or not. Um, and um, uh, and so that's the question. That's where I started my research, um, and that's the one I want to answer. Um, so so for me, that's my personal goal. I've also got a, a role within Public Health England as um, I, I, I'm, I lead screening for, um, uh, well, hip screening for Public Health England, I'm the advisor to that. So, um, so I'd also like to do the DDH screening trial as well, which, which all of us want. So they're my two big goals. Um, and so, so everything we've done so far is just leading up to that. So BOSS was introducing everything we want to research. We've got the, the trauma trials, which are kind of tough. Science is really hard. Um, but, but it's teaching us all how to consent, um, and, and then we can start to move on to the really tough ones, Perthes disease, DDH, the, the, the ones that, that, that have never been answered, but if we can start, you know, we as a group all work together to start answering questions, then we can do anything, we're, we're awesome, like, like it really is going to be cool, and that's what excites me, that's where I want to be going. Yeah, I've definitely seen the change in generally in the UK. We've become a lot more collaborative, like the North Americans. They they run amazing trials, but they are very very collaborative yeah. uh, together. And I've I've really seen that change uh, in the UK. Do you think you'll start running international uh, sort of studies? Is that possible to, with things yeah, like Perth well, 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 very much so. So so like I say, the the, the Perth AZ study group. I think they've got you know there's great opportunities. There's um, I've got some really close friends now in Gillette, like Jennifer Lane. Um, who, um, you know, they're, 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 there's, there's guys in the US who are really keen to collaborate with us and do stuff. We've just got an R34 planning grant with NIH to basically reproduce craft and science um, within, within the US. So they're looking to see whether it's feasible in a planning grant. Uh, and that's with JJ Nicky in Chicago. So there's, there's loads going on. And, and uh, you know, if we can get that, that international collaborations going, you know, with Australia and New Zealand and the other places as well, like that's, that's really cool. That's really exciting. Then we can answer the, we can even start to answer even smaller questions, like well, big questions, but in smaller diseases. And that's quite cool too. Yeah. We mentioned uh, earlier about trainees. What role do you think research should have in surgical and orthopedic training? Is there still a role for interclating and taking time out for research? And does everyone have to be an academic? Because a lot of people 
present. The publishing quality is very, very poor, but it is fundamentally part of the way we're trained these days that you must do research. Sure, so, so the, the, whole, the whole ethos that every registrar needs to publish, publish papers and they'll publish some rubbish and litter some journal somewhere with some rubbish, I mean that's nonsense, like that's, that's completely pointless and that just needs to stop, that's just funding, a, like just propagating a whole industry of, of nonsense. Um, the, if a registrar wants to do research, they should be encouraged to do research, and should you know there, there should be avenues that they can they can uh, uh, learn to do research. So so you know I, I found it quite tough to do my PhD, but you know I found ways around it. And and if people come to me wanting to do a PhD, then I'm very happy to support them. Um, but they're going to want to do a PhD because they want to do what I do. Like they want to be a clinical academic. There's no point in doing a PhD if you're not going to want to be a clinical academic. It's not you know it shouldn't be a route onto onto specialist training because frankly there's better ways you can do that. You know, um, PhDs are, are hard. Um, uh, I think it may be useful doing um, MPhils or other things to get a flavour of what it's like to be a clinical academic. You know, I think that's that's useful particularly uh, as an undergraduate or early on in your training where you might get a feel for for what it's like to be a clinical academic. Um, but I don't think all trainees should be encouraged to, do, to, 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 to write unnecessary papers. Uh, I think the option for research should be there. I think the whole ethos that the Royal College of Surgeons is promoting now uh, to get trainees engaged in, in recruiting to trials, I think that's really important. Because what the big step change has been in the last few years, and, and I think it's, it's largely been led by the trauma guys through OTS, um, is that, that, that research is just part of their normal practice. Um, and so we, we're, we're at a BISCOS meeting at the moment where we're talking, but, and upstairs there's been a few conversations about different trials that are coming up. And that's really a step change in BISCOS as well. Like a few years ago, trials were never discussed. We, you know, we've, we've got this big planned trial coming up. I mean, that's awesome that people are like, like it's like, there's, there's a few people now, like a few senior leaders within BESCOS who are standing there and saying, we want to do this trial, we're going to lead this trial, it's going to be amazing. Like the president, Tim Theologius today, I mean, that's great, that's a really big step change. Uh, and so, th so I think what's changed in the last few years, more than anything, is, is the culture. Um, and, that's, um, uh, and so trainees should be encouraged to, 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 to uh, uh, grasp onto that, that change in research culture and go with it and to accept that, that randomization is actually cool. You know, randomizing a patient is a legitimate thing to do and it's the right thing to do and it's what we should be doing because otherwise we're all just going to be having these same debates about mediated condyle fractures or CP hip screening or, or you know, DDH screening. I mean, you're going to be having it for another 100 years or, you know, Perthase disease. It was discovered in, in, it was written about in 1909 and we're still we're debating what to do with that. It's just nonsense. And we could answer these questions probably most of them within a year if we all just got together. So, um, and now we are, so it's going to be great. Yeah. You're a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Um, what is your role as an educator and how has that developed um, as you become more and more academically focused? So, so my, my, my role is very much, so I, I, I see myself as someone who uh, wants to uh, mainly inspire people to do research, inspire people to kind of uh, uh, support trials, to support what we do. Uh, but also su support and inspire the academics of tomorrow. You know, I'm, I'm really keen to, you know, I've, I've, I'm currently uh, doing children's orthopaedic research um, uh, with, some, with some other um, guys around, but there's, there's not that many people who are kind of uh, 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 the, at the younger end of the spectrum who are, who are planning on coming up and, you know, taking my job when I leave. So I want to inspire those people to, to come and join our group and, you know, grow children's orthopaedic research and make it a sustainable thing. Um, and, and so that's where, where, what we need to do now. 
we've spoken a lot about work. Yeah. yeah <laughs> how yeah. do you how do you relax? And uh, obviously, you, you know, you have a family, and how have you balanced this all? Because it's, it's yeah. busy. Yeah, I know it is busy, and and I, I spend quite a lot of time away from home, uh, particularly at the moment because I've got you know a lot of my studies run through the University of Oxford, so um, so I spend a lot of time um, uh, down there with with m my team in Oxford and, and you know my mates in Oxford. Um, uh, so, so 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 at the same time, I, I I like to try and block off time, like and I, that sounds really uh, that sounds really callous, but 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 block off time where I know I'm going to be at home. So so try and. Uh, uh, you know, tr try and pick my kids up from school um, on certain days, or uh, a lot of the time doing research, I can be home at five o'clock. Um, uh, whereas a lot of you guys can't necessarily be home at five o'clock because you know I don't have operating lists every day or, or clinics every day. So I'll be home, I'll see my kids, and then I might go back and work a little bit later on. So, um, so there's, there's, yeah, there's ways you can do it. I think it's really important to 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 just keep normal. So I like going to my, going to the pub with my mates. Uh, I like going running in the evenings and just you know snatching twenty minutes here and there to to go for a run, uh, that clears my head a little bit. I live on the beach uh, in, in Liverpool, which is, well, in, in, on the Wirral, on the dark side, uh, in, in Hoylake, where it's, uh, where it's very windy, but very beautiful. So uh, I like running along the beach and, and just, uh, yeah, just getting out. And you're quite a strong character on Twitter, so how can people follow you and... Uh... So I'm um, Mr... Yeah, so I, I, that was just an accident, actually. I, 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 yeah, but, but it's very useful. The, the children's, uh, children's A&E guys are really, really into Twitter, and that's, that's how I got into Twitter. Uh, so um, I'm Mr Dan Perry uh, on Twitter. Fantastic. So, you know, the young lad from Birmingham has done pretty amazing things, and uh, I really thank you for spending the time and explaining it, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more in further studies. And um, if anyone does want to get in touch, you can always contact me, uh, and then obviously Dan through Twitter. He's, he's very responsive. So thank you very much, <laughs> Thanks Dan. so much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you everyone for tuning in once again to this episode of the PD Podcast. I hope you'll tune in on the first Sunday of February where I'm sitting down with Dr. Uni Narayanan from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. I'd also like to take this opportunity to let you know about another podcast hosted by Kash Akhtar and Peter Bates, the trauma guru from the Royal London Hospital. It's called the podcast with an apostrophe before pod and is available on all major platforms. Please support them as you support me. Like, subscribe and comment and I'll see you next time.